what was removed from me was the dream of holding my child uh, the moment that she was born, um, of having a birth that was joyful and abundant and everyone surrounding you and you're, you know, you're, um, you know, nursing them and like all the things, right, that you uh, dream about if you dream about being a parent or a mother. And that wasn't, I didn't have that opportunity. Dr. Melissa Franklin is a director at the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. I am a Black woman who had a traumatic birth experience, whose children, who are now 13 and 16, were both born at 27 weeks, five days to the day. They're both preemies, about three months premature. Different experiences in the NICU in terms of their journey, but both oh, incredibly difficult. You know, when my youngest was born, you know, she's in the NICU, you know, fighting for her life, um, intubated, uh, on oxygen. And at that time, my oldest uh, came down with severe pneumonia, um, which she was uh, particularly vulnerable to because of her lungs still developing and the sensitivities that she had early on. And so I had two children in the hospital, two different hospitals, both needing assistance, uh, breathing. So that was like my early life as a parent. And yet we're the blessed ones, right? Our children survived. I survived, right? My producer, Aaron Bump, and I meet Dr. Franklin in Los Angeles, where her birthing experiences and career have intertwined. She co-leads a countywide effort to improve prenatal outcomes for Black mothers and babies called the African American Infant and Maternal Mortality Prevention Initiative. AIM seeks to envelop Black women in support and care in order to improve birth outcomes. It brings together multiple interventions that provide prenatal care to Black moms. You know, if I were um, going to be having children again, I'd want all the things, right? I'd want um, group prenatal care. I want, I want a doula, a midwife, a home visitor. That's just me. But at least if that's not you, that there's a place for you to be centered and uplifted and edified and um, where everyone's seeing the same outcome for you, which is wonderful and beautiful and joyous. We spent um, uh, part of yesterday with the doula. Uh, um, I was thinking like, I'm not going to be a pregnant woman ever, but man, I would like hey. want a part, part of it. Yeah, yeah. Am I, am I wrong? No, you're not wrong. Oh, uh, my gosh. I want to do it now, and I'm, I have no plans to have <laughs> right. a, a child. Right. I'm, with, I'm completely with you. Uh, I think the odds are even more against me. But, uh, <laughs> today, I'm a convert. But rewind to yesterday when we meet Orlinda Carter, a doula working with the AIM intervention. Honestly, I didn't even know what a doula was until I started doing the work. So it's totally fine. I'm like your sister. The only difference is, is that I know what the doctors are saying when they're saying it. I know the phrases that they're using, the medical terms that they're using, the medicine that they're using, why they're using it. I'm like your sister who knows birth. Who, who are we about to visit? Uh, Janetta, who is, oh my goodness, I can't wait to be at her birth. Um, she's a mom of almost three. This is her third child, a little boy. So we're in West Los Angeles, uh, walking along a, a, a long series of garden apartments, two stories. They're all painted pink. Um, some boarded up apartments here. It's an apartment complex that is, or even an area that has fallen a little bit on hard times, I would say. 
still landscaped, though. It is still landscaped. You're absolutely right. Arlinda's client, Janetta, lives here with her partner, Ezekiel, her two daughters, and their pet guinea pig, Mr. Guinea Pig. They met when Ezekiel saw a film Janetta made about a black woman just trying to get through the day and finding out she's pregnant. And now, Janetta is 36 weeks pregnant in real life. Your home is beautiful, baby. Oh my God, you're so kind. Because, um, I don't know, I just try, I collect things. I've had this couch since I moved to LA. My dad bought it for me. He passed three years ago. So I'm naming my baby boy after him, Guy Rich. His name will be Guy Rich. Yeah, and so I try to make a home for my children. That's it. That's all we can do. It's just... Mm-hmm. Janetta's hope is offset by her fears about the upcoming birth of her son, fears deeply rooted in her past experiences with the healthcare system. You know, I think there's a stereotype of black women where we have bad attitudes and just anything, if we even ask a question, it's uh, received as um, combative. So we often don't even ask the questions that we need to because we are so afraid of being treated wrong or being misinformed. So we're very quiet. Um, Even now, as you know, I'm in my 30s, even now I feel my censoring myself or I'm holding back, especially like in in the doctor's office, because I want to be treated nicely. We're in L.A. because prenatal health has significant consequences for who gets to live long, healthy lives and who doesn't. If we think of life as a race for healthy longevity, with birth as a starting line, too many black infants start well behind. In 2021, for every 1,000 births, more than four white American babies died before they turned a year old. But for black infants, more than 10 didn't make it to their first birthdays. And infant mortality is not the only problem. Babies who are born preterm, before 37 weeks, and babies born at low birth weights, under five and a half pounds, are more likely to have long-term health challenges. Dr. Tian Parker Dominguez is a professor at the University of Southern California who studies racial disparities in birth outcomes. With preterm delivery and low birth weight, these children are at much higher risk for um, physical um, health and developmental issues throughout Um, childhood in terms of being at high risk for blindness, for deafness, for emotional health issues and concerns, behavioral issues and concerns, problems in learning. So there's a lot of potential health and developmental implications that can actually span the life course. So birth weights of people were related to um, the incidence of chronic disease in adulthood like cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and diabetes. So there are lifelong implications of these adverse outcomes. Birth outcomes for African Americans are startling. And it's not just in comparison to white Americans. Black infants fare just as poorly compared to Latino and Asian American babies. Over the past half century, infant mortality has declined significantly. But the gap between African Americans and other groups has actually grown. That racial gap in birth equity is wider now than it was before the Civil War. 
These birth outcomes contribute to dramatically shorter life expectancy for African Americans. They live five and a half years fewer than whites, seven years less than Latinos, and almost 13 fewer years in Asian Americans. There are many causes for these enormous gaps, income, education, obesity, violence. But healthy life expectancy takes root even before birth, which is why a village of Angelinos is working so hard to level the playing field even before day one. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, a lifetime of inequality. I'm producer Aaron Bump. And I'm your host, Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from AARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit AARP.org. And from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. Los Angeles County is putting enormous resources into addressing birth equity. Infant mortality rates in LA County are actually among the lowest in the country, but the gap between black infants on one hand and white, Latino, and Asian infants on the other is one of the largest. To address black women and babies faring so poorly, public health leaders first need to understand the problem. So why is there such a discrepancy in birth outcomes for black babies? Let's start by ruling out all of the reasons that do not sufficiently explain the gap. I think one of the myths is that it's a genetic problem. So that it's a problem that black women have, it used to even be called the preterm birth gene. Um, Now that has been disproven. That's Linda Villarosa. She's a journalist who has covered black women's health for decades. Her book, Under the Skin, was a Pulitzer Prize finalist last year. The preterm birth gene was disproven in the early 2000s by a study examining birth certificates of women living in Chicago. Researchers James Collins and Richard David conducted an astonishing study of the birth weights of four groups of babies, white Americans, black Americans, European-born white immigrants, and black immigrants born in impoverished countries in Africa and the Caribbean. Three groups had normal birth weights. Only the Black American-born babies were smaller. African-American babies had lower birth weights than the infants born in Africa and the Caribbean. So if there had been some type of preterm gene, wouldn't you expect the people from the poorest countries to have smaller babies? But what came next was even more surprising. Collins and David tracked the birth outcomes of the next generation, the children born to the African and Caribbean-born immigrants. The researchers found that the next generation of babies had lower birth weights than their mothers, who were born in some of the most impoverished countries in the world. In just one generation of living in the United States, birth outcomes for Black babies got worse. Why would they then get smaller when they came to our much more wealthy country, where we spend so much on healthcare, where we're the richest country in the world? That didn't, you know, that didn't track. And if it was a genetic thing, wouldn't the, you know, we're from this the same black gene pool, if it, if it were a black preterm gene, then we should all have it. So that is why that stopped making sense. Collins and David concluded that it is not genes, but rather something about being black in America that is fundamentally unhealthy for these mothers and their offspring. So if it's not genetic, the gap must be due to choices black women make. You know, lots of people tell a story uh, to themselves and to others 
uh, that really blames black women uh, for these outcomes or blames the black community for these outcomes puts a lot of the responsibility on people's individual behaviors. Dr. Barbara Ferrer is the director of the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health, which is the largest in the nation. She explains how L.A. started approaching disparities in birth outcomes. The first thing is we had to get rid of false narratives uh, that everybody's walking around with um, about why, in fact, uh, Black infant mortality and Black maternal mortality are so high. We're able to use uh, information that we have, data that we collect, to show that some of the, the common myths that people walk around with, none of that was true. So it's about healthcare. Uh, black women who were well-connected to healthcare starting in the first trimester um, were still, you know, again, one and a half, two times more likely to have a poor birth outcome than white women who either came in very late in their third trimester or had no prenatal care at all. Then how about smoking? Uh, black women who didn't smoke at all uh, during their pregnancy uh, were still one and a half to two times more likely to have a poor birth outcome uh, than, uh, than white women who were smoking every single day. Then it must be related to income or education. You know, it wasn't about income. It wasn't about education. Highly educated, middle-class Black women were having much worse outcomes than white women who were living in absolute poverty who hadn't graduated from high school. Erin, can we take a time out here? I don't think there are timeouts in podcasting. I don't want to slide by what Dr. Ferrer just said, because it's a deeply unsettling fact. If we've learned anything in our reporting, it's that life expectancy in the U.S. is inextricably tied to income and education. That's right. In fact, Princeton economists Anne Case and Angus Deaton just came out with a study that demonstrates how critical education is to life expectancy. The more educated you are, the longer you live. But this law of life expectancy physics doesn't seem to apply to Black women. No matter how educated you are, no matter how wealthy you are, when it comes to maternal outcomes, nothing cushions you from the stresses of being a black woman in America. It's a sobering thought. Yes, it is. Well, let's go back to the podcast. I don't think we ever left. So if it's not due to genetics, poverty, or education, what causes this gap in birth outcomes for black babies? It's not that your personal behavior doesn't contribute. And it's not that the circumstances in which you find yourselves don't have an impact, but it doesn't explain the disproportionality, which really, you know, as we've come to learn, is, is rooted in the experience of racism. As Alicia Keys sings, even when I'm a mess, I still put on a vest with an S on my chest. But that strong facade masks the fact that black women report far more stress than any other group in America. Research shows that their stress is due to racial discrimination, concerns about the safety of children, the challenges of leading households, and finances. Not all these stresses are unique to black women, but they add up to a storm of stress that has direct biological consequences. It's called weathering. Weathering was discovered through a study of pregnant women in 1992. 
Historically, teen pregnancy was thought to result in poor birth outcomes. But in a study of 300,000 pregnant women, researcher Dr. Arlene Geronimus found that black mothers actually had the best birth outcomes when they got pregnant as teenagers. Unlike women of other races, the older black women got, the worse their birth outcomes became. Dr. Geronimus attributed this weathering of black bodies to chronic stress caused by racism. She coined the term weathering to say it's the same way a storm might weather a house. house. It'll knock the shingles off, chip the paint, um, break the windows. Journalist Linda Villarosa again. But the flip side is that people in the Black community still weather the storm of marginalization, oppression, and sort of the, the striving in an unjust society. But how does racism impact maternal health in a biological way? Professor Parker Dominguez explains. Racism presents stressors that can have real biological consequences. Stress is a psychological factor in terms of how it makes us feel anxious, right? But there are also, there's also a physiological process that happens when we are confronted with uh, stressors in our environment. And so chronic stress, sort of the chronic engagement of our stress systems, that can sort of wear, it's sort of a wear and tear on your biology. When we face stressors, our bodies prepare for a fight or flight response through a series of biological changes. So it tends to affect your blood pressure, it affects your heart rate, it affects your respirations, uh, it diverts your, your, your blood from sort of the center of your body to your extremities in case you're going to flee, stress hormones are released, cortisol, you know, for example, um, which is actually good in the short term, uh, but not chronically. And then once the threat of that stressor has passed, our body naturally goes back to a normal baseline level of physiological functioning. So our blood pressure settles down, our respirations slow down, our heart rate slows down. But if we experience chronic stress, we don't go back to baseline. Allostatic load happens when our bodies are chronically stressed. For long periods of time, we, and we're uh, sort of physiologically hyper-aroused for long periods of time, that can lead to a dysregulation of our stress response. We become less and less efficient at returning to a sort of a baseline physiological level of functioning so that it basically is like gunning the engine of your body without letting up. And that over time is going to wear down your engine. So chronic stress causes bodies to age faster due to a biological response called allostatic load. And for Black women, that premature aging shifts age-related pregnancy risks to the height of their reproductive years. And there's another way racism impacts pregnancy outcomes for African-American moms and babies. Structural racism in medicine results in a two-tier system of healthcare in this country. Studies show that Black and Latino patients receive poorer treatment than white patients in the same facilities, a result of unconscious bias against patients of color. I just didn't understand how disrespected many Black women feel uh, when they're getting their health care, particularly from non-Black clinicians, but just in general. Barbara Ferrer. And the story that sticks to me is a Black woman who, you know, had, had 
uh, big breaths. And she said it, it was so clear to her that the physician was so uncomfortable with what her body looked like. And, you know, in, in sort of the way he approached a physical exam made her just feel ugly, unwanted. And, you know, I didn't hear that story once. I heard it over and over and over again. Many people don't feel heard in medical settings, but when it comes to Black women... Like, it was just about everyone we talked to uh, felt uh, that they didn't get the respect they needed, uh, which really made it hard to develop the relationships that they felt were going to be important during their pregnancy. But it also meant that clinical care just wasn't at its best um, because signs and symptoms weren't necessarily... Uh, treated as seriously as they ought to have been. And that in and of itself, I think, demonstrates uh, the, the work that needs to happen uh, at clinical settings so that um, we don't carry on with care that feels disrespectful. So Los Angeles County is getting to work. It is a pressing, urgent issue. We, we cannot lose any more time. Losing more time is losing lives. Like, if we know what can lead to a healthy birth for a white baby and a white mom, then we need to make sure that black babies and black moms have that same opportunity. Um, and we have to align our resources uh, to do that. And that's what AIM is doing. Dr. Ferrer came to AIM from Boston, where in the year 2000, black infant mortality was five times that of white infants. Under her leadership, it dropped to double. Now, AIM utilizes some of the same strategies that worked in Boston. AIM is bringing together uh, leadership from Black women to make sure that we're aligning resources where they're going to most make a difference. And how is LA addressing this legacy of discrimination, one that is centuries in the making? AIM cannot single-handedly combat systemic racism, but it's targeting the chronic stress that leads to weathering. The inherent stress of pregnancy exacerbates black women's chronic stress levels, creating prenatal risks. So AIM's focus is to alleviate that stress by providing direct, personalized support to black women. Which brings us back to doulas, who are a central part of that strategy. AIM employs about a dozen black doulas, including Erlinda, who provide free care to hundreds of black moms in LA. I ask Erlinda how long doulas have been a part of the birthing process. Doulas have been around since birthing has existed. So a birthing person would never labor by themselves since the beginning of time. It's just you, you need to be supported. You cannot do this by yourself. Which may be why an emerging body of research suggests that doulas are associated with better birthing outcomes. According to the March of Dimes, when a mom with a high-risk pregnancy has a doula, the likelihood of having a low birth weight baby is four times less. A doula program in New York City cut preterm births in half, and mothers with doulas also report feeling less stressed during their birthing experiences. Doulas like Erlinda build relationships with mothers well before their babies are born. I'm the person that you call when anything happens, be it... You got a craving, the baby moved, you see your mucus plug, like any of the things that are dealing with that birthing process, you contact me. So I do about two to three prenatal visits. 
when my clients go to see their doctor once a month during early pregnancy, you might sit down with your doctor for 10 to 15 minutes. So things may be said in the doctor's office that clients don't understand. What do you mean my baby's not in the right direction? What do you mean my placenta's covering up my uterus? What, what's happening? And so in our prenatal visits, we spend about one to three hours just talking about all of the things. My goal is to educate clients on birth, to educate their family, their partners on what birth looks like. And then when they walk into that experience, everyone is educated on what's happening. Erlinda is by the mom's side during labor, becoming an additional member of her healthcare team. She tells us about a fundamental difference between doulas and the rest of the medical staff. So they'll come in with all the facts and no feelings, and that's what I come in. I'm like, facts and then a whole lot of feelings in there. <laughs> I try to hold that space between the medical team and the, the client and myself. So my hope is that if a doctor comes in, and baby's heart rate is dropping, and they're saying these big words, and they're very much like alarmed and scary. Um, a phrase that I use with clients is, do you want to pray about it? And they know that's a code word. They say yes, doctor leaves the room, and it allows us to talk about it. If we need to pray, we pray. But more importantly, we're going to talk like, okay, what does this mean? Why does baby's heart rate drop? What positions can you go into? Let's talk about all of the things that you can do. And Erlinda's work doesn't end when the baby is born. We do three postpartum visits. And I'm here. I'm a part of this family dynamic. I'm getting invites to birthday parties for one-year-olds. Doulas, known by a variety of names throughout the world, have been around since time immemorial. But they're not well known in the U.S., only 5% of births here are supported by doulas. They're primarily used by higher-income women because only a quarter of states cover them under Medicaid. But doulas are on the upswing. At the beginning of 2023, Medi-Cal, California's Medicaid program, began funding doulas for low-income women. Medi-Cal-funded births in the state make up 5% of babies born in the entire U.S., so California's investment is rapidly expanding Americans' access to doula support. Doulas do personal work at a time rife with raw emotions. We witness it in action during Erlinda's session with Janetta. My mom, I mean, she has five girls, and she's always um, seeing that pregnancy is a life or death situation. I mean, and when I went into labor, like, my mom just said, you know, don't, don't do a lot of screaming or complaining because... I mean, they could allow you to, like, die or something. It was really those words. She was like, they'll, you know, they could kill you, like, if you upset them. You know, it's very um, turbulent as far as, like, how you're treated, as far as, like, you know, anything can go wrong. Everyone hopes that this birth will be less stressful for Janetta. Erlinda is her first doula. So how do you both envision me? Am I here to like advocate in the hospital setting? Like what is your vision for me during labor and delivery? I, I do want advocacy because in that labor room, I'm, I have this fear that they'll like force me to get a C-section. I mean, that's really my concern. I, if, it's an, if it's a medical emergency, 
do you think that you would be okay with it then? Um, because I'm not gonna lie to you. Okay. Well, yes. If the baby's breached or something, but if I come to you and I look you in your eye and I say, "Hey, babe, this is serious. Like it's serious." Um, I just I ask that you just trust me because I'm never gonna put you in a situation where I feel like. Okay, it's been a long day. We've been here for two days. I would like to go home now. Just get a C-section. Like, no, I'm not going to do that to you. Because, yes, when you come home, I'm going to be here with you at home. I don't want you to have to walk up these stairs in this apartment um, with that C-section. And just know, like, if it does happen, I got you. I'm there. Thank you so much, Orlando, for being there for me step by step. Because I've never had so much care. Aaron, we need another time out. At the beginning of this episode, I told Dr. Franklin how impressed I was with her, Linda. I think we can now see the difference she can make in a pregnant mother's experience. Absolutely. Janetta went from stressed to calm in an hour, thanks to her, Linda. Janetta may still be anxious when she gives birth, especially given her past experience. But if stress is the problem, having a doula like her, Linda, throughout the process has to be an effective part of the solution. Okay, let's go back to the podcast. Again, Ken, we never left. Doulas are the most prominent part of the AIM approach, but they're by no means the only one. AIM also works to alleviate Black maternal stress by offering social support services such as maternity homes. So now we're here in our South LA maternity home. Um, Dr. Brandy Desjolais is the co-founder and director of the Black Maternal Health Center of Excellence. But walking into the space, you should see that Black women are very well represented in the art, on the pillows. We wanted them to be able to see themselves in the space. Um, We chose a residential location because we didn't want folks to feel like they were getting their care in a clinical space that can feel kind of sterile and isolating. We wanted to feel like you're coming to your aunt's house or to your grandmother's house. The maternity home is a gathering place, an information hub, and a clinical care center. It offers services to Black families for free, regardless of their income. The maternity home was inspired by a similar program in Cuba. They're embedded in the community, and folks you know, from very young to very old all know that there's this maternity home, and if they need support um, while they're pregnant or even thinking about getting pregnant or postpartum, that this is the place that you go. The Black Maternal Health Center of Excellence is embraced by the community it serves in South L.A. One of the things that's really surprised me is how much families prioritize the peer support. So we have had families who want to enroll in our group prenatal care programs simply because they want to be able to meet other families that are going through the same thing that they're going through. And so when you're thinking about reducing stress, creating opportunities for families to come together and gather is very important. And lower stress leads to better birth outcomes. The goal of diminishing Black women's stress is particularly challenging in medical settings. Hospitals are inherently stressful places, even under the best of circumstances. And for Black women, they can feel downright hostile. AIM is trying to alleviate maternal stress by directly addressing the unequal treatment of Black women in medical settings. Their Cherished Futures for Black Moms and Babies initiative sensitizes medical personnel in local hospitals about these issues. It it really was 
created as a way to bring together um, hospitals and health systems, public health departments, uh, insurance payers, and Black women community leaders to look at how do we change systems to address the inequities that we see in Black maternal and infant health. Um, and, you know, I think the the premise of this was putting the the onus of change on systems. Dana Sherrod leads the initiative. Hospitals participate in its two-year program. The first year is really about assessing themselves. You know, where where are the strengths? Where are their opportunities for growth? Um, and then really kind of coupled with a lot of learning, understanding truly how, you know, the history of enslavement and other sort of discriminatory practices are still being felt and seen today. Um, and then, you know, in the second year, they create implementation plans, but then we move into helping them actually put those plans into action. The program focuses on data that highlights maternal and infant health outcomes at each hospital. Sometimes, you know, we have this um, position that, yes, we know racism exists, we know institutional racism exists, but that doesn't exist, you know, in our system or within our hospital walls. But when we look at data that is by race, ethnicity, it sort of is like holding up a mirror to folks. Um, And sometimes for folks that have never seen the data from their own institution. So it really is an aha moment of, oh, my goodness, we do have some things that we need to work on. And as with all of AIM's initiatives, at Cherish Futures, Black women are leading the charge. Trying to do more to amplify Black thought leadership and voice has been um, an important lesson for us. And really, yeah, really celebrating sort of the, the thought leadership of, of black, black women in particular. But Black women aren't just necessary as advisors. Research shows that when Black mothers have Black doctors, their mortality risk is cut in half. Increasing the pipeline of Black medical personnel, especially doctors, is slow. It's more difficult now in light of the Supreme Court rulings that struck down race-conscious admissions in universities and presumably medical schools. But Erlinda offers an additional solution, one that can be implemented even in the absence of Black doctors. If we just be quiet for a little bit and just allow these women to speak up, they can say exactly what they need to say. And, they can, and as long as the system hears them, Everything is okay. Stressed Black women are saying loud and clear that they need more support, and AIM is offering it. After similar strategies improve Black infant mortality in Boston, Los Angeles County has high hopes that AIM's interventions will help it close the gap. Preliminary data from the first three years of AIM's existence are mixed. Overall, infant mortality rates are down, but the racial gap has not closed. But the Black women leading the charge in L.A. County are enthusiastic in the face of the challenge. So there's a lot of joy. There's a lot of joy in watching Black families grow. I cry at every birth. Like, guaranteed, I'm crying. Um, I want to cry now just thinking about it. A few weeks after we meet, Janetta gives birth to her baby boy, Guy Rich. And now she has a family of five. Ames' efforts have deepened the collective understanding of the gap, even among those who are intimately familiar with the Black maternal experience in this country. In L.A. County, Dr. Franklin is on a mission. We're doing everything that we can to make sure that, you know, not another Black person has to endure this um, again. It's unjust. Um, It's not just us. You would say, oh, it's just us. Like, 
No, it's unjust. And we are um, seeing to it that that injustice transforms. We deserve to have an amazing birth experience and for our children to live and us too. And that being the bare minimum outcome. And if we can do right by black women, it's a healthcare win for all. This is a humanity issue. We should all care about this. You know, if we can do better for how black folks are treated in our healthcare system, guess who else benefits? Every single pregnant person. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camillo Garzon. Music for this episode was provided by Alicia Keys and Audio Jungle. Support for this podcast comes from the National Council on Aging, the national voice working to ensure that every person can age with health, financial security, and dignity. Learn more at ncoa.org. And from ARP, the nation's largest nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to empowering people 50 and older to choose how they live as they age. To find out more, visit aarp.org. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.